This is DebtWire Managing Editor Andrew Ragsley, and we are up to episode 18 of our DebtWired series. This episode features Deputy Editor Reshmi Basu speaking with Lucy F. Queskin, partner in Mayor Brown's New York office and a member of the Global Restructuring Practice. In her work, Lucy represents debtors and also stakeholders across the entire capital structure. Her special focus is on lenders on all stages of corporate restructurings, both in and out of court, and she frequently litigates bankruptcy-related disputes around a number of issues concerning valuation, make-whole claims, intercreditor issues, fraudulent transfers, and breaches of fiduciary duty. On our discussion on the podcast, we run through the current lack of restructuring activity, lack of lender protections in primary market deals, the lull in bankruptcies, ESG, and her experience as a woman in restructuring. Lucy, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Lucy, how did 2020 and the rapid fire of Chapter 11s impact the restructuring climate in 2021? You know, commensurate defaults and commensurate restructurings with that environment. And that's really just not the case in contrast to last year, where it seemed like the world was on fire and and bankruptcies were, you know, the, the rate of filings were just absolutely insane. And I can speak for all practitioners that we were all incredibly, incredibly busy last year. And I think we cleared out a lot of the pipeline of companies that were just facing general distress. And then COVID exacerbated a lot of those issues. But what followed from from sort of that crazy last year was a lower interest rate environment, government intervention, and then distressed funds wanting to pop up and look for opportunities. And so now we just have a ton of capital that's flooding the market and looking for opportunities, which has really resulted in, you know, more new issuances, refinancings, and a and a very low default rate, especially compared to what you would expect given this sort of pseudo-COVID environment. You still have freestanding stores and malls that aren't in distress. And then you add in the COVID factors and people not going out as much or purchasing as much and doing more of their shopping online and having shifted their preferences or their, you know, what they've been doing for the past two years to basically online shopping exclusively. Honestly, I'm I'm shocked, but people are are really back in terms of spending and retailers are hiring at an absolutely robust pace. So you can sort of never never count out the American consumer, I think. And and landlords too is is an area where we thought, okay, well, it looks like a lot of commercial real estate has gone down in value and that might create a lot of pressure you know, for landlords, especially as retailers try to renegotiate leases and get more favorable terms. And we just haven't seen a ton of distress on the landlord side either. You know, that that is surprising. But I guess if a landlord has kind of come in a, and purchased at their real estate at, at a really reasonable level and they haven't levered it up, then, you know, a blip here and there in terms of what they're able to get from their retailers may, may not be enough to force them into restructuring. Lucy, what were the lessons learned from the first half of 2021? Have there been any changes in how the bankruptcy code has been used since the onset of the pandemic? Absolutely. You know, when the pandemic first started and companies started filing as a result of COVID, it was really anything goes. If if you were able to file and have dip financing, you could have 
almost any term you wanted in there because everyone was just so thrilled that somebody was was going to come in and prop up the company. And now we're just in a totally different situation where judges and and you know practitioners have, have really been able to pull back and go and revert to what you would normally see in terms of you know what's permissible under dip financing in a plan. And I think that the the rules were a little bit bended last year and now it's back to a much more rigid case. And and it's really what you've seen in cases like Hertz or Washington Prime Group where all of a sudden, you know, you've historically had bankruptcies where unsecured creditors got nothing. All of a sudden, equity equity is in the money now. So it's been a very sort of strange environment in terms of recoveries for many more creditors and, and not having to kind of, you know, put these very onerous terms on companies because really there's there's supposedly value there to support even an equity recovery. And has the interpretation of the make whole provision changed? Why have we seen this become a talking point in so many high profile bankruptcies? I think this again, you know, goes back to sort of just absolutely astronomical values that we're seeing in the market, right? If if you know, if unsecured creditor or sorry, if secured creditors are going to be, you know, getting 50% recoveries, no one really cares if they're entitled to a make call. But once you start getting down to, okay, we're gonna have unsecured creditors in the money or we're gonna have equity in the money, then people have really something to fight about with respect to the make calls. And I think the contours are are relatively well established. And, you know, based on some second and third circuit precedents from a couple of years ago, but that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, movement around the edges and that we won't continue to see these cases crop up. One thing you highlighted was that there's so much capital out there. So are companies coming out with too much leverage? That's a great question. They shouldn't be because a lot of them should be using this opportunity to really actually clean up their balance sheets, right? Raising equity in in instances where they might not have been able to do so in the past and refinancing, you know, to a lower interest rate. But some of them are going to be taking on, you know, more capital. And at some point, regardless of how much capital you raise, if you still have a substantial debt load and you don't have the income to back it up, you will have to meet your maker one day. So Lucy, has the hunt for yield created an environment where lenders are sacrificing certain protections for paper? Absolutely. We were talking a lot in the last year or two about lender on lender violence where, you know, one lender was willing to offer additional financing to improve their position and that would be to the detriment of other lenders in in the same facility. And so we sort of saw where all the landmines are and you think okay, when you go back to do more issuances, you're going to fix all of that. But there's really just so much capital chasing yield that we can't necessarily, you know, if you ask for all the protections that you want in your documents, you very well might lose out on that deal to someone else who's, you know, willing to provide on better terms for the company and give them more flexibility. So, you know, I think we kind of know where the pitfalls are, but we haven't been able to fully cure them because there really is such an absolute quest for yield. And when we come down to a market where valuations are, you know, a, a little bit more in line with what I would think is reality, I think we'll start seeing some of that lender on lender violence again and some of those movements to to try and improve one's position to the detriment of others. And we've kind of seen ESG become a buzzword um, on Wall Street. How is the strategy impacting refinancings and restructurings? 
So, I mean, I think it goes back to the origination side of things, right? If you're the sort of person who's not going to invest in it's what's seen as unseemly sort of investment from an ESG perspective, then you're probably not going to get involved in the restructuring. If you were already involved in that kind of case, I think you know, you're going to be willing to preserve your own investment and you're going to be willing to put in more money unless it's something that's really just, you know, by the between when you inve- originally invested, you know, and when the restructuring happens, it's it's really the public perception has changed in such a dramatically negative way. But I do think that there's people who are willing to come into a situation, right, and to provide additional capital if there's a little risk around it in terms of reputation. Lucy, on a personal level, what made you decide to go into restructurings, which historically has been dominated by men? So my dad was a longtime member of the New York Stock Exchange, and as his dad was before him, and and they were both traders. Um, and so I grew up kind of with finance in my blood, and that was something that led me to go to Wharton undergrad, where I concentrated in finance. And then, you know, I worked in finance for a couple of years and decided to go to law school. And I interned with Judge Gerber of the Southern District of New York Bankruptcy Court. And at the time, he was still handling GM and some other large cases. And I thought it was fascinating. I thought it was sort of the perfect mixture of my finance background and, you know, the legal education. But I I just absolutely loved that it was so fast paced. It was so different. It was, you know, it wasn't, oh, the clients decided to do a deal. Can you go paper it for us? Right. It was, you were very active in advising your clients as to what was going on and, and really in crafting those deals with them. How would you compare the current environment for a woman versus when you started as an associate? It's certainly different. The feeling is different. I'm not sure that we've seen sort of the numbers change so far. When I started it, you know, there was still an acknowledgement that there was a real lack of diversity, that there was a real lack of women, you know, at least at the top of law firms, right? Because women have been coming in as, you know, have been coming into law school at over 50% for many, many years and have been coming in as associates at, you know, 50% of the class. It's just when you start getting to the higher and higher ranks that you really see the numbers thin out. And I think that we, for a while, you know, there was an acknowledgement that it was an issue, but now there's a real emphasis on how can we fix this? How can we make this better, right? What can we do to make this environment better for women and not just, you know, in restructuring, but in, in law firms in general, right? What sort of policies can we have that make people feel valued and like they can balance their work and their lives, right? Can they have kids and can they have a career, but can they, you know, can they work from home? What are the flexibility that we can offer them? How can we make this better? Because there's a real acknowledgement that when women are, are in the room and in the picture, we actually get to better results. How did the pandemic affect women in the restructuring community? I think the pandemic has had both a, a positive and a negative impact on on women in restructuring and just women in in law and in business in general. On the good side, it's it's proven that we don't need FaceTime, and that was something that I think was really really difficult for all people, but really for women in particular, because it was just this feeling of if a woman went home and she was offline for an hour, you know, everyone started to wonder, well, where she was and how committed was she, right? And if everybody else was there, you know, you could you would hear first year associate male associates making snarky comments about you know where was the senior female associate even though in law it's actually quite easy to see how many hours everyone is billing right so it's it really was just sort of a you know a prejudice now we've proven that we really can work from home but on the flip side you sort of still see that prejudice and that assumption that women aren't as committed right if i say i can't make a phone call at a certain time people just assume that it's you know 
I'm taking care of my kids. Whereas if a man says that it just, it's assumed that, it, you know, he probably has another important business call. So there's definitely both good and bad to it. But I do hope that the shift away from FaceTime will be very positive for, for everyone hoping to achieve a work-life balance and especially women. So Lucy, how can the industry attract more women? I think it's really a matter of coming at it from all angles, right? I mean, like I said before, women have been, you know, more than 50% of law school students and associates. It's how you get them to the top and keep them at the top, right? And keep them interested and motivated and feeling valued. And so I think a lot of that is needing to do a better job of nurturing talent so people feel supported, right? So that people have the, when they say, gee, I'm thinking about not coming back after maternity leave, there are, you know, five sponsors that they have saying, no, you need to come back, right? We're going to promote you. Here are all the great things that are going to happen for you. We really value your work. And I feel, think if you get there, that's going to be, you know, a huge, a huge difference. But it's in our industry, it really has to come from all angles, right? We need to have clients who are women. We don't have a ton right now. We need to have financial advisors who are women. We need, and the law firms are probably actually doing the best job right now of women. And obviously everyone knows that we are we are not usually the forefront in terms of having a lot of women in, in powerful positions. So I think that's important. And then it's just also like the complete unconscious bias. I was talking yesterday with someone and, you know, she said that one company does this really great golf outing and they had traditionally only invited men. And one, you know, one year they invited some guy and he forwarded the email to a woman who he knew played golf. And she was excited. And so, you know, he said, okay, this woman's coming. And they said, oh, well, we've never invited any other women. I guess we should go find some women to invite. And it was just sort of that they didn't mean to exclude women. It's just they literally had never thought about it. And so you have to be really careful about, okay, are we doing something that is really geared towards one gender or or something that isn't really very inclusive? And, you know, and even if it is something like that, are there people who are willing to participate or who want to participate and who you've accidentally or inadvertently excluded because you just didn't think that they would be interested. So I, I think that that sort of stuff is very, you know, it's very important to ferret that out and to think about, okay, what activities are we doing? What's our, what is, you know, our conversation when we're not talking about business? What is it dominated by? And is it inclusive and friendly to, you know, people who don't necessarily look or think like us? Lucy, thank you so much for the great conversation and also providing us with your kind of outlook on women in restructuring. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thanks for listening to our podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Spotify. Also check us out on the Wistia platform.